The following is a conversation with Velina Chakarova. Velina is the director of the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy, the AIES, in Vienna, Austria. She conducts strategic foresight and trends analysis for the Austrian Ministry of Defense and is an instructor at the Real World Risk Institute, the RWRI, led by the best-selling author Nassim Taleb. Velina's work includes research, consulting, lectures, and publications on global and regional trends, future scenarios, and geopolitical topics for clients from the public and private sector. Her career consists of 12 years of professional experience and 10 years of academic background in the fields of security and defense policy, as well as geopolitics. She is well known for coining the term dragon bear to describe the systemic coordination between China and Russia in key domains in international affairs. Velina, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. So let's begin with a broad question. The United States has been the sole superpower for the past 30 or so years, since 89-91, the events of that time. Now, today, a new power is rising in the East. China aspires to displace and replace the United States as the sole superpower. So my questions are, is the U.S. still the sole superpower? Is, it, is the U.S. power uh, truly declining? And is China on course to displace the U.S. in the next 20-30 years? Well, this is, of course, the question that uh, everybody would like to have an answer to. And yet the outcome of uh, the current transitional period uh, in the international relations isn't clear yet. So uh, let's uh, start unpacking it a little bit. Uh, first and foremost, to, to answer directly to the question related to the U.S. being the sole superpower. In terms of global power projection, the United States is still the only state actor in the global affairs that actually possesses global power projections. Uh, one only needs to look at the map with all the military bases and uh, uh, the picture uh, speaks volumes, uh, namely that the United States are still the only power that actually is capable of, um, uh, well, deploying military troops everywhere in the world, in every corner of the world. Uh, and also, of course, when it comes to connectivity, and this is a key word, a buzzword uh, since the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, why? Because uh, this was a kind of a manifestation, the global pandemic was a kind of a manifestation of the global interconnectedness, right, uh, between all these socioeconomic systems. And if we talk about connectivity, once again, we see uh, with uh, the disruption of global supply chains, maritime uh, uh, routes, uh, trade flows, that in fact all of these kind of um, uh, supply chains are also in the need of protection, uh, kind of security guarantees, if you like. And uh, the maritime routes are predominantly protected by the United States and uh, the American allies. We will discuss this a little bit later, uh, what I really mean by, by, by that. So in a sense, um, this is the reality for 2022. Now, 
as you've also said, uh, there is a, a kind of a competitor. Um, there is a second pole uh, of uh, power or, you know, system center, systemic center of power that is China, which is uh, still on the rise. Now, some analysts uh, argue that China is probably already actually has already reached uh, uh, the peak in its growth and uh, is going to uh, witness a slowdown of its economic uh, uh, growth uh, in this decade. However, uh, once again, this path of, um, of uh, development isn't uh, known yet. So definitely the global affairs are uh, at an inflection point right now. And... Um, we have observed this uh, in the history of uh, humankind, in the, also in the history of international relations, the global powers rise and fall, the pendulum swings, swings back and forth, so to say. And it's always a kind of a fragile equilibrium which is achieved in this constant struggle of power, uh, for power and influence between uh, the um, power being a kind of a global hegemon establishing uh, the global order, taking care of uh, the rules, standards, and norms of uh, international behavior, more, more or less, and how uh, does uh, the hegemon do it uh, or achieve it? Of course, by power projection. And then there is always a competitor, uh, basically a second, uh, a second center of uh, power that creates centrifugal forces, for, uh, is forging uh, new partnerships, alliances, introduces a new kind of uh, geoeconomic agenda, and is trying to actually, um, well, compete uh, over uh, dominance uh, in the world. And we are currently in this a particular situation. Um, there is a second uh, layer which is very important uh, to be uh, named, and that is, of course, the layer of a global reserve currency. Now, global power projection is the one necessary condition. Having a global reserve currency is the, is the sufficient condition. And uh, if we look at these two layers, China is uh, far, far away from being a second uh, global power uh, at this stage. Uh, but I would argue that uh, it is uh, in the Chinese uh, self-interest to actually further compete with the United States over regional influence. And right now, the, this competition is mostly being observed, of course, uh, on the Asian continent, in the Indo-Pacific uh, realm, and not so much in other parts of the world, where, you know, in different corners uh, of the global affairs, we are also observing already minor intersections of uh, uh, the um, conflictual interests of United States and China. But right now, the main arena of uh, competition um, is uh, going to be the Indo-Pacific, uh, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, region. And um, when we talk about the Indo-Pacific region, uh, we are already observing how the United States is uh, clearly pivoting. Uh, this, hasn't be, this has been the trend since uh, Obama's administration. However, um, well, Obama's administration had a different idea how to do it, um, by mostly by engaging uh, with uh, regional partners via institutional formats. This is another important layer of this global 
competition. Uh, and you can see how multi-layered it is. Uh, and that is the layer of uh, international and regional institutions. And one needs to uh, stress that uh, following the collapse of the Soviet uh, Union uh, 30 years ago, uh, the sole global power United States um, basically uh, could uh, uh, use the institutional uh, heritage uh, from the Cold War, right? Uh, we remember how um, during the Cold War there were two different uh, superpowers with two different institutional domains, right? And they were also competing in the international, uh, within the international institutions of of the United uh, Nations and uh, their, um, so to say, um, um, different uh, organizational bodies. And uh, once uh, this institutional heritage was uh, dominated by the United States via globalization and uh, interconnectedness of all these uh, important socioeconomic systems under the con American control, um, basically the U.S. could actually impose its um, understanding of institutional, um, well, norms and standards and rules um, in all the significant uh, institutional bodies. Take uh, the UN, take uh, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. So, take all these relevant domains and there were important organizations supporting American policies and uh, strategies. And this kind of institutional layer, the third layer that I named, uh, is now being significantly contested by China and to some extent very successfully. So in this layer, for instance, China is already uh, having a partial success, of course, uh, together with uh, other regional uh, partners and mainly, for instance, when we talk about the United uh, Nations and specifically the Security Council of the United Nations, uh, there Russia is a very reliable partner. If you look at the you know, voting behavior of the two powers within the Security Council, you will uh, actually observe a positive trend where the cooperation on important international issues has increased over the last, uh, specifically over the last years. So then when we move, of course, to the other important layer, so I already named uh, global power uh, projection, global reserve currency, then institutional layer. Then we have, of course, trade and economic. So this is basically the political econo economy layer, right? Here we observe a clear competition where um, China is uh, managing through this uh, tremendous uh, growth that uh, the country has experienced over decades to actually increase its leverage and not only in uh, the Asian, um, well, Pacific or the Indo-Pacific region, but meanwhile globally, uh, which is why the competition in the trade, in the economy uh, domain is going to increase. So political economy is already observing a clear bifurcation. This is how I um, actually uh, name this uh, trend, uh, this transitionary period of the, United, of the international relations, moving rather towards a bifurcation of the international relations uh, than uh, multipolarity. And then you take, of course, the technological domain because there is another layer, and that is the layer of the fourth industrial revolution with all the significant technological breakthroughs that we are um, actually observing, uh, well, happening right now. Uh, these technological uh, breakthroughs are 
very often at the uh, well happening at the intersection between military uh, the military and the civilian um, industrial complex and are actually critical to um, uh, regional power becoming a global power what do i mean by that if you look back uh, to the history of international relations and see how the first, second, and third industrial revolutions occurred um, and who was riding the wave of these re industrial revolutions, we will clearly observe another interesting trend, and that is that the Great, that the great Britain actually managed to, uh, well, to uh, benefit and capitalize on the first and the second industrial revolutions, which also helped the... Uh, uh, helped uh, the um, uh, helped it become the global the first global power not that kind of globalized as we are observing right now with uh, United States and during the third industrial revolutions in the 70s this was part of the competition between the Soviet uh, Union and uh, the United States and once again uh, this was a clear win for the United States which also helped America actually win the Cold War so this uh, technological layer right now is observing also a clear competition between two technological superpowers, United States and China. We are already observing also how there are different alliances being forged uh, because none of them will be able to ride uh, the fourth uh, industrial uh, revolution by themselves. That means that they will need uh, um, well, credible allies to actually, um, well, uh, accelerate uh, the innovation uh, wave uh, in specific areas, be it artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, military technologies such as uh, space exploration, satellites, robots, uh, robotics, and so on and so forth. And here we don't have a clear outcome yet. We don't know exactly who is going to win uh, these, uh, these technological competitions. And finally, I'm moving to the final layer, and that is, of course, the layer as I've outlined uh, very shortly at the beginning of global norms um, and standards and rules of international behavior. And what I mean here is, of course, that we have international treaties, we have a kind of an international, um, well, um, uh, handbook of conduct, so to say. And right now, uh, there is a clear competition over the ideological component. You see how there is an alliance of democracies against, uh, you know, an alliance of uh, authoritarian regimes. Uh, basically, China and Russia are coming together to uh, create a counterweight to this kind of uh, newly uh, US-led alliance of democracies. Then again, as I said, within the international institutions, uh, China has been already penetrating uh, this uh, kind of important international bodies. Um, and of course, China has also managed to forge its own regional partnerships and alliances uh, in the trade domain, in the economic domain, uh, which of course will also present uh, its own ideas and uh, understanding of rules of uh, international behavior. And uh, the way how the two competitors, United States and China, will manage to actually forge um, ad hoc alliances and also long-term uh, partnerships is also going to be decisive for the overall competition and specifically for the outcome of this uh, systemic uh, rivalry. So we are in the middle of a comprehensive 
systemic competition. And when we look from a helicopter view at the international relations, at the global system, there is this clear systemic layer of competition between only two powers, and these are United States and China. So you spoke about bifurcation of the of the international global system. So let's unpack it a little bit. So there are two schools of thought. One school of thought says some experts are saying that we are moving towards a multipolar world. And there are many Indian experts who talk about this because they love multipolarity and non-alignment and all that. And like you said, we are we may actually be moving towards a bipolar world, not a multipolar world. So could you unpack that? Why you think it's a more of a bipolar direction we are going in and not a multipolar world? Of course, from an Indian point of view, and as an European, I can also share that this is the overwhelming European uh, view uh, of uh, multipolarity. So if you are in uh, India or in Europe, you will actually mostly hear, uh, hear about, uh, um, well, about this, um, uh, well, more or less um, view on uh, the world and the global affairs as entering a multipolarity phase. And once again, I need to consider the most important uh, domains of uh, competition between uh, between great powers. And if we look at the a combination of political economy, because you really need the geoeconomic cloud first and foremost. Okay, if we take the geoeconomic cloud and to consider the European and the Indian position in it, we, might, we may argue that, uh, well, the European Union as a supra-organization of 27 member states still has this uh, enormous geoeconomic cloud, is uh, on par with the uh, United States and with uh, China in terms of uh, trade volumes, in terms of outreach to um, any kind of... Uh, regional groups of um, countries or any kind of corner of the world um, take uh, all the free uh, trade agreements into consideration. Right now, there is even a relaunch of the three, uh, free trade agreement with, uh, with India. So yes, we can say definitely. Then on the Indian side, uh, of course, India is being projected to become the third world uh, economic power in the world by probably the next, uh, by this or next decade. And uh, looking at the projection growth, of course, this will mean that uh, India will uh, also possess a growing uh, geoeconomic cloud. But let's uh, not forget that uh, this is a necessary but not sufficient condition for great powers competition. And uh, this is why I also named the other important domains, uh, the domain of technology, the domain of uh, global rules and norms. Uh, is uh, India going to be this uh, global rules Sector in the world? Is uh, the European Union right now relevant uh, actors when it comes to protecting and safeguarding global rules and norms? I mean, look at uh, even the direct vicinity of the European Union to the south and to the east, where even in this direct European neighborhood, the European Union is not a credible geopolitical actor. So, um, of course, uh, when we speak about India, uh, and India is going to have much, much more serious problems, uh, direct uh, conflict uh, with uh, China, the tensions along the line of control, and in the Indian Ocean are projected to grow. 
so in a sense, India is going to witness a real military conflict uh, scenario with uh, China, the two most uh, important and uh, biggest Asian uh, Asian countries are going to be involved in a serious in a series of military tensions in this decade and probably in the next one. So, in a sense, uh, here probably India is uh, much more capable of uh, of uh, well projecting regional power in the long run rather than the European Union, where I just don't see how. Uh, by all means, the European Union is going to turn into a relevant security actor. Uh, and I can give you another example, and that is the example of uh, the maritime routes, where I mentioned that uh, maritime routes are still the most important uh, layer of uh, global trade flows. I mean, most of the trade is still being conducted uh, via sea routes. And here, even the maritime routes that are critical to the European uh, trade flows, like the ones in the Indo-Pacific, uh, region, like in the Indian Ocean, they are not being protected by the European uh, powers. Uh, I mean, except for France, which is, of course, the biggest, um, the biggest Indo-Pacific uh, uh, country in Europe, right? With a global uh, kind of, um, with a global outreach uh, when it comes to, uh, well, military bases and uh, also power projection in certain parts of the world, uh, from a European uh, perspective, of course, together with Great Britain. Um, aside from France, we don't really have any credible. Um, actors on the ground, which will be willing to uh, spend more on uh, defense capabilities and on uh, power projection in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, being the most critical uh, to uh, European uh, trade flows. Now imagine if these trade flows will be disrupted or by a military conflict, how will actually the European Union respond to that? Um, knowing that, uh, you know, the whole a trade flow will be actually blocked, uh, and that is, uh, of course, the critical question. And finally, when we talk about, um, so this domain is still missing, and I don't see uh, really a significant role for the European Union. And so long as uh, there is no significant role in the hard power domain, you cannot be a significant great power without being, uh, you know, without having a hard power projection. Um, the well, the picture looks very differently in the Indian case, and maybe this is, of course, one way how we can actually argue that depending on the extrapolation part of India, how India will manage to really become a, a great power in geoeconomic terms, if this really is a successful story, and India manages also to develop its hard power and really succeeds in forging credible alliances, because this is right now the case with India, rather with India than with the European Union. Take a look at uh, what is going on right now in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, India cannot afford itself to be the next non-allied country in a new competition. This kind of strategy that India had during the Cold War is not going to work out for the Indian national interests. On the opposite, because right now the new Cold War, the Cold War 2.0, is going to take place at the direct vicinity of India. It's going to affect directly Indian national interests. So in a sense, this is an open question mark where if India can manage to forge uh, um, credible alliances, like take the AUKUS, for example, right now Japan is considering uh, joining the Security and Defense Pact 
between uh, United States, uh, Great Britain and uh, Australia. Um, and at some point, if there is a jacuzzi coming out of it, right, with Japan and India in it, uh, this is going to be a significant uh, U-turn in uh, the non-aligned thinking that has been uh, accompanying Indian strategic thinking for decades. Then, of course, the Quad is another example. So I think that due to the also uh, regional constellation where China has entered the rapprochement with uh, Pakistan and now is going to move also towards uh, Afghanistan, Iran, uh, there will be a geoeconomic space completely controlled or maybe largely uh, controlled by uh, China. And for India, there will be only several options to actually bypass this geoeconomic space. So in a sense, we can also argue that uh, if India does not want to enter a direct uh, competition with uh, China um, and does not want to enter a strategic alliance with uh, the United States, maybe there will be a third way. And this third way of a non-aligned uh, you know, powers is a way where India and the European unions manage to uh, actually create a geoeconomic alliance where they are really powerful uh, geoeconomic players, uh, where they protect their uh, geoeconomic interests but are not entering into a direct confrontation with, uh, you know, with the systemic rivals, China and uh, the United States. But aside from that, I just don't see how these important layers, you know, take the the financial domain, take the domain of international regional organizations and institutions because you need a structural layer to actually facilitate your power projection. And right now, I don't see how the European Union or India would be these credible partners to actually, uh, well, uh, launch their own alternative of uh, international and regional formats where they can actually convince others that uh, it's important to be part of their formats. And this is, uh, whether we like it or not, uh, currently the case with China. China has managed to launch all these uh, various uh, regional formats and to actually uh, create this kind of centrifugal forces of, uh, well, radiating power and, uh, well, convincing other others uh, to be part of them. Um, and finally, um, of course, uh, that that is the the the, the, the layer of uh, norms and uh, rules of behavior i mean this is a huge price to pay if you want to be the norms setter and without the credible hard power without an institutional layer without a reserve currency how are the european union or india going to play this multipolar multipolar um, uh, game. So in a sense, at, uh, what I argue is that we do have a multipolar world, but at the regional level of, uh, at the meta level of international affairs. And wherever you look at this meta level of international affairs, be it in Asia, be it in the Middle East, be it in Africa, be it in Europe or in Latin America, you will observe this fluid ad hoc geopolitical and geoeconomic formations where uh, powers are competing in one parts of the world in one part of the world but are still cooperating in another one and uh, this does not contradict in fact my thesis on the bifurcation of the global system at the systemic layer because in order to be a systemic power you need to fulfill all these uh, uh, conditions uh, you need to do a check on all these important uh, domains 
and uh, currently I see it only happening with uh, with with China being capable of uh, you know becoming doesn't mean it, it it's there yet and finally of course and this is also something important uh, to understand uh, where we still don't have a clear idea where the trend is going so we are i'm observing the trend but i don't know whether this journey leads is uh, when it comes to this kind of mixture of um of uh, becoming heartland and rimland power at the very same time when it comes to the chinese strategy so china is currently trying to do something very unique and it might really result if successful in something very dangerous in a sense why because um China is not only competing with the United States uh, uh, in the maritime domain, you know, take the South China Sea, the Straits of Taiwan, the Indian Ocean, where it uh, has also introduced these strings of pearls against India, uh, creating uh, economic corridors in Pakistan, Myanmar, trying to basically uh, get an access to the Indian Ocean. So you have this Rimland strategy that uh, made uh, the United States so successful over seven decades. Um, and at the same time, bypassing maritime domains, uh, uh, dominance of uh, United States by creating terrestrial connectivity in what was once the heartland of the Soviet bloc of the Soviet Union. So basically taking the whole Eurasian landmass into consideration, creating terrestrial connectivities via Russia, but also via Central Asian countries, moving with deviations along Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, meanwhile, Turkey, and then creating actually uh, this terrestrial connectivity uh, towards uh, Europe, towards the industrial heart of Europe. Of course, the final target, these are the industrialized European countries of France, Germany, Great Britain, Italy, Spain. So you see how this is a, a twofold strategy, twofold approach that, as I said, we don't know yet, will it be successful. But if it's successful, we are going to end up with a unique Asian Jew strategy, which, of course, will reshuffle the whole equilibrium very interesting the outline china is like in, i think it's demonstrating a staggering amount of ambition and a great deal of hurry it wants to take out the the rimland and the heartland both at the same time now uh, china has recently entered the european continent before the pandemic in a big way via the belt and road initiative the 17 plus mechanism with the soviet bloc former nations and all that so are things still going well with this or has the european approach and attitude towards china changed after the pandemic because we heard what the german navy chief last week had to say about china did he reveal a little bit about what europe really feels now about china well, um, if you ask me what the European strategy would be, that would mean, of course, mostly the European Union powers, uh, 
uh, keep in mind uh, for our viewers, of course, and listeners uh, in uh, Asia that uh, are following the Brexit, uh, meaning the uh, exit of uh, the Great Britain from the United uh, from the from the United Front of the European Member States. Now there are two different uh, approaches. Well, we all have on the one side the Anglosphere approach, uh, where Great Britain actually rejoined, so to say, or strengthened. Uh, it's um, allegiance to uh, the United States. And I gave you already an example. Uh, you, Great Britain is uh, increasingly looking towards the Indo-Pacific, but is also looking to basically provide uh, security, financial services, whatever it still has at stake, uh, also in Europe. And then we have the European Union members, uh, 27 member states, of course, the French, German, um, access of European integration is at the core of this project and it's going to decisively affect uh, every kind of direction uh, in the foreign security and defense policy of the European Union. And you should not forget that when we talk about the European Union, this is a twofold uh, process. We don't have only the member states that have to decide over the relations with the third uh, power or with the third country, but we have also the institutions, which uh, also are part of this decision-making pro uh, process. Now, when it comes to China, uh, of course, the messages are very mixed. First, there is this idea that uh, the European Commission, which is in charge for all important uh, trade relations with third part uh, partners, like uh, I mentioned, a free trade agreement with uh, India. Now, of course, when it came to the relations with China, the European Commission came up with uh, actually with a solid proposal to uh, to launch an investment deal, comprehensive investment deal with China, which is actually, if you look at the hierarchy of uh, uh, trade uh, deals uh, between the European Commission and third part uh, partners, is actually less than what uh, the European Commission is now trying to achieve with India, just to give you an idea. And still, it was very important to actually facilitate, finally facilitate and institutionalize the relations in the trade and uh, economic area between the European members and China. So in a sense, it was a very misfortunate timing because it was launched basically at the end of uh, the year before Christmas, uh, um, knowing that uh, uh, the previous German Chancellor did not have much more time uh, uh, to, to achieve any kind of uh, success because after that last year, uh, Germany entered uh, into a new election cycle. Meanwhile, Germany has a new uh, chancellor uh, from the Socialist uh, Democratic Party. And it was, uh, you know, the year before, at the end of the year, in December 2020, it was a very decisive uh, element of uh, the German strategy to actually come up with an institutionalized approach to China. So if you ask me to how to how I assess this uh, step, I still think that it was a very important uh, step for the European Union to settle the relationship in this uh, in this area, in this domain, despite all the grievances, of course, all these kind of um, layers once again in the relationship, 
uh, which were not considered. You know, take human rights into consideration, uh, human rights uh, violations, uh, all these uh, really um, important layers that need to be actually looked at. And this is eventually what happened because then uh, the agreement landed in the European Parliament and the discussion started about the actually the violation of labor rights, uh, human rights um, and uh, minority rights. And this is how the thing actually ended before even, you know, uh, seeing uh, light, the light of the day. So in a sense, uh, you see how all these in institutional uh, players are important for the, pro uh, for, the, for the process. Right now, this uh, investment deal has been put on hold. The relationship has been actually witnessing a lot of uh, hurdles since then. Sanctions were introduced um, on both sides, uh, China and the European Union. And of course, uh, there are also now issues emerging between individual member states and China. This is the case, and you mentioned 16 plus one. 16 plus one was an initiative that was launched parallel to the Belt and Road Initiative, firstly named uh, one, uh, one Belt, One Road, and was actually aiming to, um, well, to engage the post-Soviet bloc, uh, the countries from the post-Soviet bloc, which of course is anticipated as the weakest uh, spot uh, in the European Union, how to enter actually the European common market uh, via those countries that do not have uh, strong institutions, are often, uh, are often uh, well, witnessing corruption scandals, can be blackmailed, can be, uh, well, uh, you can get to corrupt pol politicians easily. You can offer a loan. So the full agenda of, uh, you know, geoeconomic coercion can be applied to them. And um, this uh, 16 plus 1 format, which then became 17 plus 1 because Greece also entered, well, was uh, <clears throat> to some extent uh, successful for China because China could also use uh, some, uh, you know, some of some leverage uh, over the European Union. In a sense, what I argued is that uh, China became a European power because it started being a function in the European domestic politics. Take the discussion on 5G, uh, take uh, the discussion about uh, questionable loans uh, and investments, um, and then take the question of uh, human rights violations. But then again, um, as I said, uh, following this uh, disaster with uh, investment deal, what uh, began, uh, um, you know, what started also um, as a kind of a, a reaction towards uh, certain Chinese uh, policies and, um, well, that this kind of dominance uh, approach by China is uh, that uh, some member states uh, also uh, launched uh, relations with Taiwan. This is the case with uh, Lithuania. Lithuania exited from the se uh, 17 plus 1, uh, was actually rooting for uh, 27 plus 1 instead. I mean, think about it uh, from a European perspective. If you have uh, 16 plus 1, 
engaging each uh, individual member state, why the European Union should not actually initiate a similar approach to China, where it has its uh, trade and uh, political uh, representatives, where, for instance, take Tibet or take uh, Xinjiang into consideration, uh, or Hong Kong, or uh, take whatever you know important uh, uh, hotspots in China and say, okay, we want to initiate uh, relations with uh, this particular, uh, you know, area of China. So, in a sense, uh, what started happening in this year particularly, and I think that this is the trend, is going to increase uh, because now, for instance, Slovenia also joined uh, the Lithuanian approach and said, okay, we also want to actually accelerate relations with Taiwan instead, right? Um, the thing is that, and this is the big dichotomy in this relationship. The big European powers, of course, have a strong interest in equidistance between United States and China. They don't want to take sides. They don't, they don't want to get involved in a systemic uh, competition. They don't see China as a security threat to Europe. But the problem is with the minor uh, European powers. And this is where I think one of the big conflictual interests is going to arise and it's going to uh, lead to polarization within the European Union because Central and Eastern European members still wear the memory of the communist past. They don't want to uh, subjugate themselves to authoritarian regimes. They are very sensitive when it comes to authoritarian um, rule and authoritarian style of relations. And they don't have these trade incentives like the big European powers. So in a sense, they can also diversify their trade uh, portfolio. They will always look up to the United States as the only and sole security guarantor against Russia, because for them, Russia is this security threat, not China. But they will always actually align themselves with the United States because they don't see France or Germany as the security guarantor of Central and Eastern Europe. And we are clearly observing a kind of a new, bi uh, new bipolarization within Europe. So you see also how this is now affecting uh, the um, geopolitical preferences of European members, where I fear that the worst uh, case scenario will be a kind of a situation where part of the European powers will actually go uh, their own way, as I presented it already, you know, trying to, uh, trying to balance and navigate between United States and uh, China, acquiescence as long as possible, not taking sides. But the minor partners will actually go along with uh, the United States. We are already observing this in the case of the Ukraine conflict, where they are actually siding with Ukraine. They are providing help to Ukraine. They are clearly on the side of the United States. And this is going to happen also with China. They are going to clearly uh, create a counterweight, uh, you know, in Europe uh, towards uh, China because they will, they will, uh, they are convinced of the long-term ramifications and uh, actually uh, effects from an increased Chinese presence on the European continent. Very interesting. Now, NATO is a major player in the, in the, in the European Union. And NATO means the US. Now, recently, uh, relations between the US and European NATO nations weren't very good during President Trump's tenure, for instance. Later on, you had this decline in US-Germany relations because of Nord Stream. 
uh, we know what the German Navy chief said recently, Putin deserves respect. Russia is an important partner, so to say. And we also see a decline in the US-France relations because of the submarine saga. So are there major problems within NATO or are these just minor hiccups? Well, of course, there have been always kind of internal crisis and uh, discontent, but this is very, very typical for democracies. I mean, democracies are, you know, discussing, debating, they have different views. Then at some point you have to find, you have to arrive at a compromise. This is also very typical for the European Union as a as an institution, and it's not different in the NATO. Uh, well, in the NATO domain, I don't think that NATO has become irrelevant. In fact, even though that, uh, of course, European uh, powers such as Germany and uh, France, particularly France, because uh, most of the ambitious uh, long-term visions are coming from the French president right now. The French president, if uh, being re-elected, is going to remain this passionate uh, brain of, uh, you know, of the European uh, powers when it comes to the future role and the future positioning of Europe. But this is nothing new. We know that uh, French have always been ambitious about that, where the German is more, uh, more so to say, more uh, the, the Jewish economic motor, the geoeconomic engine of uh, the European uh, integration uh, project. So this is nothing new. I mean, this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, internal debates uh, and uh, discontent uh, is actually something healthy for uh, for all the um, members, be it the European ones or the transatlantic ones um, within NATO. And I think that now with uh, this uh, growing threat coming from both China and Russia, uh, there will be a kind of a new role for NATO. NATO will come up with a new strategic review. China is already being mentioned. Uh, I think that uh, there will be a kind of a threat multiplier being described by, you know, by uh, the NATO members when it comes to the combined effect coming from China and Russia, because uh, so far uh, NATO's, uh, you know, main target was uh, Russia. But this is not going to be um, the case any longer. I mean, for European NATO members, of course, Russia will remain uh, the number one security threat. But uh, uh, globally, uh, this is going to be China, increasingly China. And uh, I think that they will come up with a kind of a combined uh, threat multiplier um, when it comes to both uh, powers. We've already observed, uh, well, I have already observed this uh, trend in uh, the strategic documents by the United States. So in a sense, I don't see how NATO will actually become irrelevant because if this would be the case, uh, European powers, as I mentioned, the minor European powers will actually uh, split roles because they will, uh, they don't see uh, their security guarantees coming from France or uh, Germany. And this is actually the major issue that France is going to have also with uh, Indo-Pacific uh, allies, because in reality, what became apparent is that uh, Australia took sides. Australia took sides in this, exactly in this bipolarization and sided with the United States because uh, United States is this sole security uh, guarantor for Australian national interests. It's not France. Uh, and the same will happen in Europe sooner or later. So France uh, needs to start dealing with these issues if they want to really be a credible, um, well, uh, security provider 
um, in the old continent. And here we are right now in the middle of something that is called uh, um, strategic autonomy debate, how Europe can become a strategic autonomous uh, actor on the global arena um, by taking into consideration all of these important layers that I've already mentioned, like the technological domain, uh, supply chains resilience. Um, then, of course, what I didn't mention, but is going to increasingly be important, are the soft uh, the soft power topics. Uh, take climate change, green transition, decarbonization, uh, digitalization. So all of these kind of uh, important uh, layers that will be that will be part of this strategic autonomy domain. So there will be a discussion how Europe can become more, uh, well, more self-reliant when it comes also to the uh, security and defense. This is going to be the discussion for this, de uh, for this decade, for sure. But um, clearly, uh, if I look at the current trend, we are in a power uh, vacuum right now. There is a transition of power in Germany. The new government needs to, of course, to start uh, ruling and needs to actually accommodate with uh, within the new uh, coalition. So this will take time. Uh, the French uh, president need, needs to get re-elected first and foremost. And then, of course, uh, both will have to uh, deal with uh, post-COVID repercussions, not only for France and Germany, but for the whole continent. And then, of course, it will be also important how these macro strategies that have been launched by the European uh, institutions, by the European Commission, such as the new Green Deal, when it comes to the decarbonize, uh, decarbonizing the continent, uh, Europe wants to become the first uh, carbon uh, zero um, basically uh, continent in the world, um, how this will actually, um, well, take place and how successful this will be. As I said, also, we are in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution. That also means where is the place of uh, Europe? And all of this has question marks. We don't have a clear, we don't have a clear uh, answer to this question. So in a sense, to go back to your question, if we come together in 10 years from now, NATO still will be here. They will still be dealing with Russia, but they will be dealing also increasingly with uh, China. And there is, um, yes, many say NATO is an institutional reminiscence from the Cold War, and that is true. But we should also not forget that NATO is the, still the only institution, you know, defense alliance, that knows how to deal with an authoritarian superpower that actually starts challenging um, not just the uh, sole global power, but uh, actually starts challenging the uh, regional equilibria in every part of the world. And that affects every country, including uh, India, including the European Union. So this is going to be the case. So NATO is still going to be here. Uh, as I said, more dangerous uh, uh, where I'm really carefully looking at is how this bifurcation is affecting the regional uh, constellations within the European Union when it comes to the domain of security and defense. And then, of course, uh, how they will settle the relationship with Russia. I mean, this is going to be the biggest question mark for this decade. Right. Now, you are famous for coining the term dragon bear to, dis to describe the systemic partnership or cooperation between China and Russia. Now, Russia is an interesting power. It's no longer a top 10 economy, but it's still a nuclear superpower, a military-grade power, a major supplier of energy. 
Now, Russia and China have an interesting relationship. It's an interesting history, to say the least. They almost went to war in the 60s. So in my opinion, they would rather be natural adversaries than allies. Maybe there's a short-term alliance. So my question to you is, what does Russia stand to gain with this partnership with China? What are the objectives of the partnership? What's the level of trust between them? And how long do you see this partnership lasting? Yes, I coined the term the dragon bear in 2014 to point out to a modus vivendi of systemic coordination that uh, started emerging uh, following the isolation of uh, Russia by the West. So the dragon bear is neither an alliance uh, or an intent nor a marriage of convenience. It's a temporary, tactical, asymmetric, uh, asymmetrical relationship between uh, China and uh, Russia. And it actually, um, the way it has been said, as I, uh, well, as I am trying to outline, is that China is predominantly setting the tone in uh, the most significant domains, uh, where uh, Russia is uh, this uh, really um, needed regional partner uh, to increase Chinese uh, global outreach. And I will explain a little bit uh, more what I mean by that. Um, I see a common geopolitical interest um, specifically in pushing back uh, the global influence uh, of uh, United States uh, in uh, all these uh, relevant global affairs uh, issues. So not only in Europe or in Asia, but really to, to create a significant counterweight to American dominance uh, in the important layers I mentioned at the beginning. This is something that is, uh, you know, um, beneficial uh, for both uh, China and uh, Russia, but for different reasons. Um, Russia is, uh, in reality, a regional um, regional um, power, um, basically regional uh, great power, with the world's largest uh, nuclear arsenal, um, and um, Russian um, the Russian uh, vertical axis of geopolitical and geoeconomic interests starts from the Arctic, moves to the Eurasian landmass, landmass and the near abroad. The near abroad is basically what Russia defines as its own sphere of influence since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, being in the Eastern uh, Europe, um, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, uh, also, of course, uh, South Caucasus, then moving along to the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean, where Russia also has established, re-established military presence. And uh, from there also now moving uh, towards Middle East and North Africa and filling also geopolitical uh, gaps uh, in uh, these particular regions. So you see a vertical expansion of uh, interest. And now, meanwhile, Russia is also uh, trying to um, uh, further expand towards African countries. If you look at the coastal expansion where Russia, for instance, was uh, seeking seeking to uh, to get military bases. You see how there is clearly also an attempt to get an access to the Indian Ocean. Uh, Russia is not an Indo-Pacific uh, power yet. However, for the new emerging Indo-Pacific uh, decade of global power competition, Russia will certainly need a military footprint there as well. And uh, in reality, uh, as I described before, uh, the, this vertical um, 
uh, expansion of uh, Russian econo geoeconomic and geopolitical uh, interest does not really collide with the uh, horizontal expansion of uh, China via the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, what I explained with the heartland and with the maritime uh, expansion moving from China towards the Indo-Pacific realm in the maritime domain and also the terrestrial connectivities in uh, Russia, Central Asian countries and then with all the important deviations towards Europe and uh, Africa and meanwhile to some uh, extent uh, also uh, Latin America. So in a sense, I don't see actually a colliding of uh, geoeconomic and geopolitical interests. And also, of course, many, many experts were uh, well claimed that uh, there will be specifically conflictual interests in Central Asia, in the Far East, uh, probably to some extent in the Arctic, and also in the near abroad, but uh, there is uh, still no uh, valid, uh, no valid uh, proof of these uh, claims. On the opposite, in Central Asia, of course, without a doubt, in the long term, Russia will never tolerate uh, Sinica scenario in the Central Asian uh, landmass or in its near abroad. This is out of question. But we are not there yet, right? So it's a tactical, as I said, a tactical um, modus vivendi of uh, systemic coordination. Uh, also in uh, the Far uh, East, uh, there is still no actual uh, conflict of uh, interests. Uh, uh, and in the Arctic, uh, given the climate change uh, and the environmental um, changes, Russia is actually uh, looking to also use uh, the Arctic Northern route uh, uh, one day and to also uh, offer a credible maritime connectivity uh, as opposed to the American uh, dominated ones, which of course will be very interesting uh, for and beneficial for the Chinese uh, geoeconomic uh, interests. So uh, why are they uh, launch, why, why did they launch this modus vivendi? Why are they pushing for this modus vivendi of systemic coordination between them? Uh, well, uh, to mutually neutralize exactly these emerging uh, tensions and upheavals in all relevant socioeconomic systems, the global economy, finance, trade, move to diplomacy, political uh, partnerships uh, and uh, alliances, and then uh, reaching out to military, to the military, to the defense domain, uh, and also the strategic component of alliances and partnerships. So we clearly see that both uh, actors actually share a very similar view on the transitional uh, phase of uh, international relations. Uh, they clearly observe that, uh, well, that the United States as being the sole um, global power with uh, global power projections, with a global currency, uh, reserve currency, and with all this, you know, uh, important uh, dominance in this socioeconomic uh, uh, domains, uh, well, this is detrimental to both Russian and Chinese interests. Uh, also, or furthermore, uh, this um, transitional period uh, of international relations can have a very unpredictable impact on the Russian and Chinese interests and specifically domestic, the domestic ones. We know very well that um, in China, as in uh, Russia, first and foremost, it's always about the survival of the own regime, 
right? So in a sense, they see a kind of a overlapping interest of, you know, uh, backing each other in order to survive. I mean, in China, the most important uh, security issue is, is will always be uh, for uh, Xi Jinping and his circle of closest uh, elites to survive. And that means any kind of unpredictable instability um, domestic, uh, in the domestic affairs needs to be prevented, in, if necessary, of course, by uh, the use of force. The same goes for Russia. We've seen this uh, throughout the last 30 years. Uh, Russia never shied away from using hard power when it came to uh, the own national interests. So once again, we see how both are actually backing each other uh, in order to provide uh, the necessary uh, security environment for the leadership to survive. Uh, and finally, of course, for Russia, you mentioned it, Russia is no, no longer being this global power, but of course, uh, having important uh, tools and instruments to actually apply serious regional power uh, projects can be very helpful for the Chinese uh, heartland dreamland uh, strategic approach in the long term. Russia might become this global mercenary power for Chinese geoeconomic <laughs> interests in the long run. I mean, look at what happened in Kazakhstan, uh, where Russia decided ad hoc to uh, deploy uh, rapid military units, of course, within uh, a regional organization. Uh, CSDO, but this happened for the very, very first time. It took a period of uh, two uh, to three uh, weeks to organize, deploy, conduct uh, the operation, and then also withdraw. And uh, this uh, actually was approved by China, even though the China has very strong geoeconomic interests in Kazakhstan and in the other Central Asian countries, because of for the you know for the sake of stability. And I think that this kind of formula of um, uh, division of tasks and roles within this modus vivendi where Russia uh, plays the role of a security provider uh, and China plays the role of a financial, uh, well, liquidity provider, take it take in a more general terms, or uh, let's say economic and trade provider. Um, this kind of formula may, may actually be applied also in other uh, regions. Um, um, specifically, take the example of Afghanistan, where China also needs the help of uh, Russia to fill the geopolitical and the geoeconomic void left by the United States following the withdrawal. So, against this backdrop, uh, there is definitely a, this uh, this trio, these three powers are going to decisively uh, influence the post-COVID world order. Uh, and will actually affect uh, this uh, transitional uh, period of uh, international affairs. And I don't think that they really need to announce any kind of alliance. I mean, this is uh, 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 the, because you mentioned also the question of trust. And I think that uh, here, once again, we are running the risk to actually expect something that uh, both powers do not really require in their relationship, because we mentioned the question of trust, but what does it mean trust in 
um, in in uh, powers such as Russia and China. I mean, here obviously uh, it's not about trust. They know uh, they know each other too well. I don't see why China would actually engage in a direct military confrontation with Russia in this uh, transitional period of international relations while facing the competition with uh, America and at the very same time why would uh, actually why would actually Russia get engaged in a military conflict or a direct conflict with China given the serious uh, contradictions it's facing with the European powers uh, being backed by the United States so in a sense what they actually uh, silently agree on is to uh, create the opposite to create a counterweight based on two fronts scenario because uh, this is uh, definitely a worst case scenario for uh, America, for the United States to, to actually face uh, two parallel um, threats one being in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, this is the military escalation right now uh, which is, um, you know, once again in, being initiated by Russia and at the very same time, you know, facing uh, military escalation in the Strait of Taiwan uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, this is, of course, um, something that uh, no uh, global power wants to end up with uh, as, a, as a scenario. At the very same time, uh, as I said, uh, for Russia specifically, from a Russian point of view, um, this um, comes at the right uh, at the right time because following the 2014 um, annexation of Crimea, Russia was uh, completely isolated by the West. And you mentioned the problematic with uh, the financial and eco economic status of uh, of uh, current Russian economy and. Uh, in fact, in 2014, Russia was facing a default situation with its currency following the military uh, conflict in eastern Ukraine. Who came to help? Who came to the rescue? It was China. And since then, I mean, knowing that you have the backup by China, um, you can become more adventurous. And uh, right now, this is the case because Russia actually is relying on uh, China's backup in case that the military escalation uh, turns to become a serious direct military conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Would you think that uh, Russia would uh, actually do this out of adventurism without having a financial and economic backup? Never, never. And in a sense, for China, of course, this is also a brother ahead of the Olympic Games because if uh, Russia keeps uh, the West busy by at least, let's say, February 20, when the Olympic Games are over, and given all these diplomatic boycotts coming now from the West uh, regarding the Chinese Olympics, uh, this is a kind of a... Um, a positive development from a Chinese point of view in a sense that while Russia is keeping the West busy, China can focus on the Olympic Games. So in a sense, what I see is that Russia is preparing for the long game. Russia is already preparing for the uh, systemic rivalry between the United States and China. Russia knows that it can turn into this indispensable player for both America and China. Why? Because neither China nor America wants to see Russia being part of the rivals geopolitical, uh, geopolitical bloc. In a sense, this can actually decide 
um, over the equation between the two systemic rivals. And uh, Russia is expecting that the United States at some point will actually need to get closer to Moscow in the systemic rivalry because of the systemic rivalry with uh, China. And I think this is now my personal reading that these uh, impossible conditions that Moscow set on the United States and uh, NATO, um, they are published by the way, they are absolutely impossible in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of uh, any kind of, um, um, well, uh, realism uh, on the side of uh, European NATO members, but also on the side of the United States to agree on. And yet, uh, I think that uh, Moscow placed this, uh, so to say, these conditions for the future approximation between Washington and Moscow to test the red lines of America and to see what America is really ready to do if it wants to actually um, uh, lure uh, away Moscow from uh, China. So you see it's a multidimensional game uh, that is going on right now between them. And I clearly don't see how America is going to manage to actually create a, create a, a kind of a gap, uh, if you like, or a conflict between uh, Russia and China for at least, as I said, short uh, to uh, midterm. On the opposite, uh, it's a match in heaven. You mentioned energy. Uh, Russia is the combined oil and gas uh, supplier in the world. Uh, China is still the world's uh, energy consumer, at least for the next 20 well, 10 to 20 years, there is going to be an increased demand uh, also uh, when it comes to oil and gas coming from China. Then uh, take the long-standing territorial disputes that have been solved between them. As I said, uh, none of them has now an interest to actually revive any kind of military conflict along their common border on the opposite. Uh, they want to stabilize Central Asia. Why? Because of the spillover effects coming from Afghanistan, any terrorist activities that might actually penetrate the Central Asian um, landmass are detrimental to Chinese and Russian interests. So once again, they will actually cooperate and to, to, to stabilize uh, this uh, landmass and keep external powers away from it. And as I said, when it comes to dealing with the United States, currently both are also convinced of, uh, you know, of, uh, of the benefits coming out of the systemic uh, coordination. Uh, and I already gave you the examples of uh, institutional cooperation within uh, international and regional uh, institutions. Um, and uh, well, clearly a tactical level, clearly asymmetrical, but clearly uh, for the moment uh, there, there are no chances of uh, splitting the two of them. Fascinating. So in the, in the short to medium term, it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> Very yeah, interesting. Absolutely. Right. So what's happening right now in Ukraine and Kazakhstan? Are these two situations interconnected? Could you explain how these situations developed and is there a possibility of war? Oh, first and foremost, uh, the, maybe to start with the Kazakhstan uh, situation and then mo to move uh, 
back to uh, Eastern uh, Europe and to Ukraine. Um, the situation in Kazakhstan, uh, first and foremost, this was not the first time that something uh something like that occurred on the opposite there have been uh, similar situations in the past um in fact uh, the fuel price uh, rises sparked the unrest um, um at the beginning of uh, this year and this uh, led to a violent uh, well uh, led to uh, protests which spread very quickly um, towards uh, many, uh, many uh, cities in Kazakhstan and ended in a violence, violence which, uh, um, well, resulted in uh, hundreds of people being killed, thousands of people being arrested. Uh, so the violence uh, took a very, very uh, quick uh, escalation uh, spiral. Now, the what is important about Kazakhstan is to uh, use this example as something that uh, I am convinced that we are going to observe in many other parts of the world uh, due to the current uh, uh, socio-economic repercussions of uh, COVID. Now we have a, we have surging food prices uh, globally, and uh, meanwhile the um, uh, food index uh, has reached. Uh, the same levels as uh, it did in 2011, and what happened in 2011 is uh, the Arabs was the Arab Spring. So, in a sense, uh, the surge in food prices, coupled with uh, during that time also bad years in terms of uh, of um, the um, uh, the, um, the wet uh, production and uh, you know the important corn production, um, and of course uh, combined with other negative uh, factors, uh, actually resulted in uh, this uh, really serious uh, situation that led to a series of protests uh, in uh, the MENA region, in the Middle East and North African region. And currently, we are in a situation, as I said, where the food uh, uh, prices are surging everywhere in the world. We have a situation of uh, energy, surging energy prices. And uh, of course, in uh, those parts of the world where you uh, also observe uh, um, really um, um, serious, um, serious uh, internal dynamics when it comes to corruption level, bad governance, uh, discontent on the side of of, uh, of uh, citizens. Uh, this is, uh, so to say, the perfect storm. And I see Kazakhstan only as one uh, uh, piece of many uh, domino pieces to fall uh, in this and the next uh, years. So there will be, so to say, structural uh, repercussions of the global pandemic that we are going to observe uh, um, in uh, the years uh, to come. Now, what is important is the reaction, of course, by the external uh, powers. On the one side, the United States and the European uh, powers were absolutely missing. Uh, well, the European uh, Union has very strong geoeconomic interests uh, in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is one of the non-OPEC uh, energy provider, all supplier to uh, Europe, and also the most important uranium uh, supplier. And one would expect actually that the European Union will take more, uh, more significant, well, will play more significant role in the conflict resolution in, uh, you know, de-escalating the situation. But this was not the case. Uh, United States were, of course, dealing with Russia uh, during that time, preparing for the important talks um, 
uh, with uh, Moscow. And in a sense, uh, due to the exit uh, from uh, Afghanistan, United States also did not have or does not have any military footprint, no military presence in Central Asia, and uh, almost no political leverage. So in a sense, uh, we clearly observed uh, that uh, this, of course, was one of the layers that played a role. Um, and uh, uh, on the other side, as I already mentioned previously, Central Asia is increasingly important for Russia and China for different reasons. And now Russia, for the very first time, in fact, uh, took a very rapid decision to actually uh, get militarily involved uh, with the collective security treaty organization it was the very first uh, the very first it was not the first request but it was the first uh, such operation as i said it was a operation that uh, took place very um, uh, quickly, very swiftly, and yet uh, um, also the deployment of the troops by Russia and the other members of the collective sec uh, security treaty organizations were withdrawn also uh, very quickly once the situation was stabilized. So the military deployment of around 5,000 uh, troops was actually used only to stabilize the situation uh, and to, to uh, actually secure um, critical infrastructure mostly protests were uh take were taking a dangerous uh, turn in the commercial capital of Kazakhstan Almaty so it was very important to stabilize uh, the city and this uh, also um took place um uh, in the midst of a transfer of power between uh, the previous uh, president of Kazakhstan, Nusultan Nazarbayev, and the uh, uh, new one, uh, President uh, Tukayev. So in a sense, um, uh, Kazakhstan has uh, nothing to do with Ukraine. <laughs> to put it very shortly, uh, it can have something to do with Ukraine. If we look at a look at uh, this uh, Russian approach um, and if we try to make sense about how Russia is now intervening in its uh, direct uh, neighborhood and its direct uh, sphere of influence because Kazakhstan together with the other Central Asian countries, as I said, is uh, seen as part of this uh, Russian sphere of influence. Um, where any kind of instability, and this was also the Russian official view that uh, uh, these were uh, terror elements trying to destabilize the country, that there was a foreign interference, uh, that there were organized um, uh, groups uh, trying to basically uh, sabotage the security of the country and uh, capitalize on this and to use the protests uh, in a kind of a uh, similar situation as the colorful uh, revolutions uh, which uh, Russia um, witnessed in other parts, including Ukraine. So maybe this is the only parallel. Um, and in a sense, uh, the rapid reaction also showed a very clear uh, Russian stance uh, regarding this kind of uh, feeling of being threatened by destabilizations. Uh, as I said, interestingly, China also offered uh, to help with the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization for Cooperation, which is another regional organization that is uh, also that where Kazakhstan is also a member. But uh, this uh, 
offer was um, was uh, declined, and in a sense, uh, China sided with uh, the Russian official view on the events in Kazakhstan. Also, um, there is um, a layer of uh, regional uh, cooperation. Um, Russia is part of the Shanghai. Um, organization for cooperation and I see that probably in the future there will be more um, also regional cooperation between the two organizations so this is an interesting uh, trend to be uh, to be observed and to, to be followed and uh, in reality what I said also that um, that this kind of formula of uh, division of tasks might emerge in uh, Central Asia in the future in case that there are other uh, similar situations of uh, destabilization with threatening spillover effects. Uh, this has been the case in the past in other uh, Central Asian countries. And right now, both China and uh, Russia are eager to suppress any kind of destabilization. They are also, meanwhile, conducting military drills in the region uh, following the episode uh, with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan last summer. And uh, I think that uh, it will be a kind of split of roles, uh, which is uh, also um, well critical to the Chinese long-term geostrategy in uh, Eurasia, in a sense, to use uh, Russian hard power to safeguard Chinese geoeconomic interests, because China can provide the liquidity, China can actually facilitate uh, the the trade deals and create the uh, you know the different uh, transport uh, energy corridors can invest uh, a lot uh, in uh, these kind of uh, projects whereas uh, Russia is profiling itself as this uh, kind of uh, regional and as i said maybe in the long term even uh, global uh, mercenary power for uh, China so long as of course the dragon bear uh, this kind of uh, modus operandi uh, works. So um, this um, very short uh, short episode of escalation in Kazakhstan was uh, um, basically, as seen from Russian and Chinese view, uh, was uh, settled very quickly, very swiftly and efficiently. Now, of course, uh, there is still the question mark about the long-term implications, how the Kazakh population will perceive the Russian military involvement uh, because uh, uh, President Tukayev, uh, it was President Tukayev's decision to call in Russian military forces. How will it be perceived as a kind of sign of weakness by the Kazakh uh, population in the long term? Will it backfire when it comes to the Russian power projection in uh, Central Asia? We are about to see. Um, and of course, uh, Russia suddenly uh, got an additional bargaining power uh, over Europe uh, by having more control over uh, the Kazakh uh, political affairs right now. As I said, this might uh, become uh, problematic for European powers, uh, specifically because they are uh, also dependent to some extent on uh, energy and uranium supply from Kazakhstan. So think about it in terms of how Russia has already managed to use energy supplies as a geopolitical tool when it comes to other, uh, well, when it comes to the current energy crisis. Um, and if we add this additional uh, 
control, so to say, that can be used uh, also against European interests, this might become a little bit dangerous uh, in the long term, as seen from a European uh, pers pers perspective. And then again, of course, there is a question mark about the transition of power, whether the new president will actually uh, manage to establish uh, his own networks uh, in the country, given that the former leader was the longest serving ruler of any former Soviet um, uh, state uh, until he turned over the presidency. So in a sense, there will be indeed uh, a strong interest on the side of China and Russia to coordinate in order to keep this kind of potential uh, escalation under control, I think, in the short and midterm, because neither China nor Russia want to see uh, actually destabilization in their direct vicinity, and they don't want to see an active role of third external powers there, which is bad news for India, by, uh, by the way, because India has been expanding its true economic portfolio towards Central Asian uh, countries and was looking at uh, alternative uh, connectivity um, uh, roads and corridors uh, that bypass uh, the Chinese Belt and Road uh, initiative. And one way how India wanted to approach this was and to connect itself to Europe via Russia was actually via Iran, uh, via the port of Chabahar, and then from there to create a transport and trade corridor towards Central Asian uh, countries and then to Russia and from there to towards Europe. So in a sense, it's also... Um, not uh, really uh, good news for India right now. Uh, I mean, any kind of stronger coordination between China and uh, Russia in Central Asia, but also in South Asia, is actually something that needs to be cautiously observed uh, by the Indian uh, strategic thinkers and elites. Now, when it comes to Ukraine, of course, the situation is uh, very complicated. It's something that... Um, has so many layers uh, to uh, you know to cover and to wrap up in uh, such a short time that um, um, maybe I will just focus on a few points uh, that I consider as being very important um, and of course uh, uh, all of the information all media right now is uh, you know is publishing uh, a lot about uh, the Ukrainian conflict. So uh, the military escalation actually by uh, Russia near the Ukraine's uh, near Ukraine's borders. So in a sense, I will spare the details. You can check all of them, but I will focus only on several points. The first point is that the military escalation by Russia uh, was something that has been anticipated for uh, for years. I mean, following the events in 2013, 2014, um, specifically when uh, United, uh, well, you, when when Ukraine actually took a U-turn in its uh, foreign uh, and security policy orientation, uh, following the protests uh, in Euromaidan. And then uh, the Ukrainian uh, president flew to you to to Russia. Um, more or less, which actually resulted in uh, actually in the first real invasion by Russia um, over uh, Ukrainian territory. What I mean is, uh, of course, the uh, secessionist movements uh, in eastern Ukraine, which were actually um, 
overtly supported by uh, Russia, uh, were backed by military uh, equipment and uh, intelligence, uh, and uh, the full spectrum of warfare was applied uh, on Ukraine. Ukraine was in a state of war in 2014, following the also uh, the um, annexation of Crimea which was also took uh, was was taken by russia via use of uh, hard power so obviously this was one uh, of many episodes from the last 30 uh, years but this one was uh, of course uh, a peak of uh, military escalation uh, and it clearly showed uh, actually, the Russian approach to not only Ukraine, but to the Eastern European countries being um, squeezed between the European Union on the one side and uh, Russia on the other side. So because uh, following the last waves of uh, European enlargement, um, the European Union suddenly ended up being a direct neighbor uh, to Russia. And there were six countries um, in between. So this kind of uh, uh, geographic area between Russia and the European Union, which was, of course, um, uh, consisting of countries with uh, post-Soviet uh, past, but also uh, with, you know, countries looking up to the European Union when it came to trade, um, economic ties, uh, exchange, uh, uh, with uh, with uh, the European capitals and so on and so forth. So in a sense, for Russia, it was always, um, and Russia never hid it, uh, Russian, part of the Russian sphere of uh, influence. And of course, that meant and still means one thing, and that is that Russia will always be willing to uh, use hard power to achieve uh, certain uh, national interests. And uh, the... Um, this agenda by Russia was clearly outlined uh, also last summer when the Russian president uh, wrote an article on uh, Ukraine and Russia, um, also setting the record uh, when it comes to uh, historical moments as seen from the Russian point, official point of view. And the military escalation that took place in uh, December was also a follow-up of uh, the spring episode where Russia similarly amassed uh, more than 100,000 troops along the border with uh, Ukraine. Now, what does it mean? The first thing is that to look at the Russian approach uh, from this three-dimensional, um, three-dimensional um, kind of way, how um, Moscow and specifically the Russian president is perceiving the current global affairs. The first, of course, important layer is that Russia wants to be seen as this imminent threat to Ukraine. Why? Because it will never accept uh, uh, any further enlargement uh, by NATO. So this is an absolute red line for uh, the Russian geopolitical interests. And Russia will always be willing to apply hard power, no matter the price, in order to prevent this kind of uh, enlargement. So this is a reality. This is a geopolitical reality. And the European powers, the European NATO members, together with the United States, need to come up with uh, solid and credible approach how to respond to this reality which is currently happening i mean uh, nato allies um, are providing ukraine already with uh, military um, aid and equipment and uh, troops 
are being sent, military advisors to help Ukraine prepare for a direct military attack, which once again, I want to stress is imminent and will always be imminent. That means that Russia can always actually attack and will always do it. And I think that this is the most important message that we need to understand when it comes to the Russian uh, I don't think that we will witness a military attack uh, before February 20 um, and I will explain why there is currently a kind of a split in the expert community so half of it thinks that uh, there will be a military immediate military attack, the conditions that impose uh, on United States and uh, NATO members, and now with a series of uh, negotiations, uh, meetings, where, uh, for instance, um, uh, this week, uh, the American written response to these conditions is expected by Moscow, and then there will be a next round of uh, talks and meetings. So the second group of experts thinks that uh, this kind of negotiation process will take time, and that's why this uh, military, uh, direct military uh, opinions. Now, I think that we I am uh, anticipating uh, when it comes to, uh, to Russia. The second uh, layer is what I've already actually described with uh, the current uh, political vacuum in Europe. And I think that Russia is seizing the opportunity, uh, is using this window of, uh, of opportunity, so to say, to, um, well, to um, accelerate the split between European powers, because it sees that uh, clearly there is a, a vacuum in Germany and in France due to the election cycles, which was logical, which, which was anticipated. Uh, it added additional stress on European powers by accelerating the um, energy crisis, which was not solely due to the Russian uh, energy supply or the lack of such, because uh, Gazprom actually did not fill the reserves, uh, um, the gas reserves in Europe in December and now in January, it's continuing to be reluctant to do so. Uh, it added additional stress, but the energy crisis is a complex um, uh, outcome of uh, various factors, you know, which played, uh, you know, played into the, uh, into the, you know, into the uh, current acceleration and need to be factored in. So in a sense, you have of energy crisis, you have a political vacuum, you can show by military escalation along Ukraine's uh, border how geopolitically irrelevant European powers have become in solving escalations in their direct vicinity. The psychological effect on, of course, on allies and partners will be devastating. And we are already observing 
clearly how this uh, this is uh, happening. I mean, take for instance the German reaction into consideration, where Germany was reluctant to uh, provide direct military aid to Ukraine, was also blocking other partners from providing such aid. And you see how this is already becoming an issue. And this is the second layer. So creating divide. Uh, conflictual lines, uh, you know, nurturing these conflictual lines. Then, of course, we have some uh, European powers which are more pro-Russian, pro-Russian friendly, or let's say more dependent on Russian uh, commodities uh, supply. And then we have uh, European powers that are not so dependent. So take all of this uh, into consideration. You see how you can actually score a lot and create a real real long-term uh, negative effect on the European approach to Russia. And then, as I said, the third important layer that is actually missing, mostly missing in the current assessment on the situation. And this is actually the systemic layer where Russia is trying to use this situation and to, in order to upgrade its positioning in the systemic rivalry between United States and China. How, I mean, how many powers in the world can actually amass such amount of troops in such a short time? Isn't it the way how you actually profile yourself as this indispensable military actor and security actor that neither United States nor China can ignore in the future? And not because of the appeal of the Russian force, but because it's not in your interest to have such a powerful adversary as being part of your rival's block. And that's, I think, is the missing element where Russia is actually using the systemic rivalry between the United States and China to position itself for different reasons. I mean, it's using it in both directions against the United States, as I said, to test the American reaction by placing impossible conditions. What is America ready to actually concede? What would be the American concessions if Russia is, if America is seriously interested in getting closer to Russia in the long term, of course, not now? in order to lure it away from, uh, from China. And at the very same time, Putin can score against China as well. Why? We are in the middle of the preparations for Olympic Games. Uh, Beijing has been struggling to create a positive image following the last two years. We know why the Wuhan <laughs> virus, as uh, the previous president was uh, describing it. Uh, I, it's still a big issue for uh, Xi Jinping to actually uh, re-establish this positive image. Prior to the COVID-19 crisis now, given the, uh, the, the skyrocketing uh, um, diplomatic boycotts coming from the West, China is in a very difficult diplomatic situation to actually show to the world what kind of uh, soft power projection it has with these Olympic Games. This is not a secret, it's understandable, it's a transparent goal. And uh, having a situation of a direct military, basically of a war between Russia and Ukraine with unanticipated second uh, order effects will actually threaten the whole <laughs> the whole Olympic Games and will uh, will overshadow 
the importance of this uh, of this uh, endeavor by Beijing. So in a sense, um, Russia is also presenting this uh, uh, as a kind of a way how uh, Moscow can keep the West busy by deciding when to actually um, reinvade Ukraine, if at all, right? Because as I said, they can always do it, but it really depends on the anticipated price for that and mostly the benefits and the double, the, 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 the double value, uh, so to say, what they expect uh, to get from that. So in a sense, they can also create this diplomatic two-front scenario right now I mean, there is uh, no coincidence that China and Russia diplomatically um, arranged this, uh, you know, coordination of their views on Ukraine and uh, Taiwan, which previously was actually Beijing was reluctant to uh, openly uh, back Russia's view on Ukraine. On the opposite, following the annexation of Crimea, uh, China was in fact reluctant to give an official approval and to, to uh, diplomatically back uh, Moscow in this scenario. Now, suddenly we are in the middle of a two-front two scenario where both are backing each other, uh, each other's views on Taiwan and, um, and uh, Ukraine, where Russia is openly stating that uh, it will never tolerate and will never diplomatically approve geopolitical blocs such as AUKUS and Quad in the Indo-Pacific, and it's vehemently against geopolitical blocs, which of course are detrimental to which interests? To the Chinese interests. And Russia being non-Indo-Pacific power, what does it benefit from, you know, from using this uh, strong diplomatic language and this stage? But if we consider this uh, from, uh, from, from this third important layer, you see how clearly how actually uh, Russia is capitalizing on uh, China's uh, backup in case this military escalation results in a direct military confrontation. So all cards are all on the table right now. And Russia placed its, uh, put its conditions on the table for both, for China and America, and now can start actually um, balancing between them, you know, knowing that it can influence the equation in both directions. And this is something that is uh, actually not anticipated in uh, Europe. I don't think uh, that it's really being anticipated in India or in the Indo-Pacific as well for now, but it's going to be increasingly is going to be increasingly discussed by security experts uh, due to the long-term implications. So the last question is about the India-China relationship. It's a very fraught relationship, very, very interesting history. Do you foresee a, a war or conflict between India and China in the next 10 years or so? I anticipate uh, increased number of uh, direct military tensions between the two Asian Goliaths. And I think that... Uh, it's going to be due not just uh, the security situation in South Asia and beyond from the past decade, but there will be an additional layer uh, added to this uh, competition. It's going to be a geoeconomic competition between India and China, as I said, with India becoming uh, a third uh, world's economic power and having powerful allies and partners in the Anglosphere world. This will uh, increase the pressure on China 
But also on the other side, given Chinese actions like the rapprochement with Pakistan, the economic corridors in uh, Pakistan and Myanmar, now the, the, the emerging connectivity between Afghanistan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, moving to Turkey and then, you know, bypassing actually India and squeezing India in its own geoeconomic space. I think this is all kind of, uh, you know, um, destined to end in uh, direct uh, military uh, tensions between uh, China and uh, India, where I foresee that, uh, of course, America will be eager to support uh, the Indian position. On the other side, I think that uh, Moscow will uh, seek to remain neutral, kind of mediate to play a mediator role because uh, it supplies both uh, sides with arms. It, you know, it's beneficial for Russian. Uh, geopolitical interests and uh, can also use its uh, mediator role in diplomatic formats such as RIC, the uh, you know the Russian, India, China um, format between the foreign ministers, uh, or uh, it can also use its leverage within the Shanghai Organization for Cooperation. So in Sen, I foresee actually the Indo-Pacific. Um, as this uh, main arena for competition, rivalry, and direct also military tensions in this uh, decade, and we are going to observe a lot of uh, a lot of uh, specific geoeconomic uh, competition because of the access to natural resources, the exploitation of natural resources, water resources, um, and um, and the way how. Uh, trade, uh, transport, um, digital connectivity is going to be created, the relocation of uh, supply chains. So it's going to be a complex mixture of so many, uh, so many different domains where this competition is going to take place that, uh, of course, um, I think it's uh, it's it's obvious that uh, there will be a lot of uh, a lot of uh, tensions. Uh, occurring um, and arising from uh, this competition in this decade, unfortunately. All right, Velina, thank you very much for a fascinating and illuminating conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.